Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Doof Media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Wildbo's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and this is the body attached to my floating balloon head, Scott Daly. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wildbo's world of bad moms, cracked ice, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week on the show, we continue Arc 17 Sundown with chapters 17.x and 17.y. It's a couple of interludes in the heads of our favorite malfunctioning majors and their ass-tattooed mentor, Fumehood. We learn about their trigger events and the ties that bind them. And then those ties are tested as Fumehood accidentally kickstarts the apocalypse. Matt, what do you think about these two chapters? Well, first of all, I'm just really glad we're always able to bring so much levity and mockery to the serious, extremely serious subject matter of this text with our with our intros. I just I feel like that's a, a really great thing we're able to bring to to the to the work and to the community at large. It um, is how I deal with with pressure situations and, and sadness and suffering and loss. Yes, I understand. Um, I mean, these are obviously two, two of those great memorable chapters like that. I, I almost want to say like the, the, the reason why you come to these stories, but that's not really true because there's all kinds of reasons why you come to these stories. Um, they're entertaining as hell, but the, the times like this, when everything just lines up, everything clicks uh, it, it it works on all levels, you know, all the levels I appreciate on the writing level, on the thematic level, on the kicking you in the gut emotionally level. Um, and I'm really glad we get to k- uh, cover these two chapters together also. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's something I'm really happy about. Yeah, I mean, we're always kind of rolling the dice about when we're going to cover chapters. And it's like a like just this, this long chain of critical moments and critical decisions that decide which chapters we're covering when. Um that was a joke because <laughs> critical moments. But no, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think Ward declared what it was in these chapters. Um, and I'll, we'll ex- I'll explain what I mean when we get to it. But I think the 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 conceit of the story kind of made itself known at the end of uh, 17.y. And I, I love what it's saying. And I, I, I had this this feeling of euphoria. Even I mean, it's, it's ironic, even as the world literally ends around our our uh, our characters there's this real moment of hope at the end of this chapter and i love it i love it a lot yeah uh, i agree it's one of those moments where there's a bittersweetness but also it's like yeah you know that was this is such a like a moment of of what's the, i don't even know what word i'm looking for it 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 just lands so well that even though it's sad it's um, it's beautiful in its sadness, I yep. guess. Yep. And yeah. I cannot wait to talk about it. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's do it. get there. Yeah. Yes. Uh, before we start though, quick announcements, uh, the Halloween costume contest is over. We have a winner in Sarah D as Victoria Dallin and Terry's. Um, wow. That was a good costume. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think the smart thing Sarah did in her submission was include a second picture in which someone held an egg 
up to the frame uh-huh. and she showed her discomfort with it, uh, yeah. which was perfect. Discomfort, was perfect. terror. Yes. Yes. As she should. Mm-hmm. And then the runner up was Richard M and, and family uh, as the number fam. Uh, we had number, number man, Citrine and uh, thing one and thing two, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's uh, really good. Yeah. Uh, both of these entries were superb, but look, they all were great. Like all of them. We had an amazing eclectic group of entries this year. Um, I still like we talked about this last week, but this idea you came up with kind of on a whim, Matt, like was just such a good idea. I love it. I love yeah, it. I'm so glad we get to see this. Yeah. So you can see the winners and all of the entries at the link that's going to be in the show notes of this episode, or you can head on over to doofmedia.com uh, and just go to We've Got Ward and you'll be able to see it there. Um, yep. So congratulations to Sarah and Richard and your family. And thank you, everyone that, who, to, that's uh, submitted submitted to this thing. Yeah, it was great. That, that was awesome. Can't wait till next year. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> hey, Scott. Um, do you remember when last week you mentioned something about if people hadn't seen aliens that you would like buy them aliens. No, you can't. I mean, there's no, there's no actual way to prove that I did that. (laughs) So I'm just going to call you a liar. Okay. Okay. Well, no, I mean, we got quite quite a few people (laughs) emailed me. Um, so (laughs) oops. Um, look, I am a man of my word. I take it seriously. And so the people that emailed me, I am going to buy you a copy of Aliens. I am working on how to do that because I thought you could just like buy someone a digital copy from Amazon and just send them the code for it. No, you can't do that. I don't know why you can't do that, but you, you can't do that. So we're going to figure it out. But if you yeah. emailed me, I'm going to get you a copy. But I'm I, doing think, it. I think maybe we should cut it off now. Like, yeah, like well, at this yeah. point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you missed you missed the, you missed the opportunity. Yeah. We we now understand that more than zero people have not seen aliens. It's ridiculous, frankly. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I mean, we didn't believe it, frankly. <laughs> so um I feel like someone just wants to update their collection of aliens <laughs> and it's just telling me they haven't seen it. That's it. It's the only logical explanation. Uh, I mean I, I mean I th- I think I literally have two copies of aliens in my DVD collection, so that sounds plausible to me, actually. Yeah. I um, I mean I de- I've definitely bought it on every medium it's been on. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, we're going to give you people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, of course. We yeah. trust you. We wouldn't, you wouldn't lie to me. No. All right. So, <laughs> so that'll, that'll be dealt with yes. in, in due time. And now let's get into these chapters. All right. 17.x. And the chapter opens with withdrawal. This is an interlude chapter, of course. Withdrawal arriving to join the struggle against a restless, increasingly aggressive mob. The first line of the text of this chapter tells us that the problem with the malfunctions is is that they all move at different speeds. And this cleverly hints at how these chapters will be staggered out. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It's it's a really clever device. And I kind of want to talk about the structural framing of these interludes in general, because it's doing some interesting stuff, right? Um, The first thing we see when we open it is withdrawal now, right? So our brains immediately go we make deductions here. Like if you, if you shout out who the, who the point of view character is usually means there's going to be more than one. If you use the word now usually means there's going to also be a then. Um, and so we make these mental connections and we're kind of prepared to see where it's go. And that, and because of the malfunctions, I think me personally, I immediately went like, Oh, so we're going to see finale. We're going to see carry added. Like the, those are the mm-hmm. people we're going to see. It's going to be all three of them. Um, but then as you, you're right that the order 
that we see them in is the order which the speed which they go right withdrawals the fastest we get his first then we have finale who's slower and then we have carry added who's the slow and steady tortoise of the group and we mm-hmm. see them in the and there's an interesting thing going on here and maybe we'll talk about this when we get to it specifically but there's an interesting thing going on here with the then now and the critical points and how the story doles this information out to you like in this chapter and in in 17.x it's inverted right so it goes um goes now then uh critical and then critical then now for withdrawal and and finale yeah and then it's in yet another order with um carry added right Mm -hmm. and then with uh, fume hood it just goes fucking nuts yeah i I mean see we might have a chance to talk about that later if something occurs to us but i think it's it's good to just post up front that yeah it's it's uh, other than being lumped in terms of withdrawal then finale then carry added then fume hood there's not any obvious pattern to the order in which they're I, I mean I think the pattern it is less of a pattern and more of a storytelling wise does it make sense to put th- this part here you know mm-hmm. but like like we want to understand this character's backstory before we see this moment about what's going to happen in the present uh, in some cases so, sure um, I mean I, I do think there is some specific structural design around finale and withdrawal mirroring each other mm-hmm. in this way where his he his ends with critical her starts with critical mm-hmm. that, like i think that is a specific structural choice but i do agree that overall the the choice made here is where does it fit best in the in the the story that we're telling the little mini story we're telling about each of these characters where does each of these moments fit best mm-hmm. i agree with that yeah so uh we learned a little bit about withdrawals horrible horrible tinker power Basically, his his agility frame is always seconds from just coming apart if he doesn't take into account every last minor detail. And later on, just to sit down, he'll need to manipulate like 10 different latches and catches. Uh, even something as minor as having lost a small amount of weight causes the suit to rattle, quote, like someone was shaking a cage. Uh, and then really in a really cool way, that language, like someone was shaking a cage, connects to the text in the next line of the the people that they're corralling the people were doing their own shaking and rattling i thought that was fantastic it is i mean it it specifically takes this imagery and connects it to what's going on and i mean the whole thing is this really wonderful image of a situation that is just teetering on the edge of chaos right like he is almost consistently riding the line of just this all blowing up in his face and that's exactly where the the major malfunctions are right now they're in a situation that is on the verge of just going nuts barely holding it together yeah, yeah. and i love i love the writing like one of the things we'll see is, is amongst these four point of view characters and especially amongst the differences between uh the major malfunctions and uh there is there is something very specific in the, you. I think you feel the point of view voice differences between the three of them, right? I think they they talk very distinctly. Their thought processes are very distinct and interesting. Um, withdrawals here is very makes sense with his power, right? He's like he's very precise. Uh, the total weight of his frame and the current fluid dispenser, the pill popper, amounted to two hundred and sixty seven point one three four pounds. Like it is so precise, it is so careful, and that perfectly matches his character. And the other two will have this this very specific voice. And I think Wild Bill uses like a certain concept to define the voice amongst each of these three people I, it's very assured and i really really enjoyed it I, th- I thought it was fantastic and this is one part of the story where uh 
um, for whatever reason, the the connection between the powers and the individuals I felt was handled in a way that really kind of popped for me. Mm-hmm. And we'll have plenty of, of time to talk about this on, on a you know one by one basis, but um, just for you know just for for example, withdrawal, the fact that he's a tinker, his tinkeriness, his his attention to his to his power is emphasized throughout this early part of the chapter very heavily. He spends so much time thinking about how difficult it is to move around, how much attention he has to pay to every movement, how he's how like the the, the rattle, you know, of of his suit, which is later going to be connected to the fact that he got his power while he was having the DTs, yeah. uh, which is literally it's, your body rattling. Um it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, th- th- we're going to talk more about that in more detail later, but yeah. like like and then and then on the on the other end of the spectrum um, Caryatid has kind of this detached, uh, this detached mentality or this proneness to wanting to be detached in order to deal with problems by pushing herself away from them, which relates to her trigger event and her trigger and her power. Um, so yeah, we're going to, we're going to go through all that. I just like, like that's, that's kind of the framing device for this chat for these two chapters actually is how, the problems these people have are tied up in their trigger, which is tied up in their power, which is tied up in what they're experiencing and going through right now. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it's wonderful. And I think that is basically, you're absolutely right that that is the then now critical moment structure yes. uh, made manifest. And I, what I, what I really love is, is like everything you just said is absolutely hundred percent true. And then we add onto the top, the fact that the, just the, the rhythm and the tone and the voice of the prose matches those concepts. Like Cariad is this person that's very detached, very, um, and I'm jumping the gun way, but like she speaks in metaphor a lot, mm. right? She has this very clear, like, um, interest in imagery to describe feeling. Um, mm. and it, it is very unique to her specifically amongst these three. And I, it just, it just comes through that their voices really come through in the text here. Uh, totally. I, just, I just really liked it. So let's, we spent way too much time <laughs> setting up the other conversations we're going to have. So let's move on. But Okay. All right. So, yeah, we're also made aware of the fact that he has this new pill popper weapon that he's using derived from Fumehood's power. Yeah. And I support this new Pez dispenser over that giant scary needle thing. This is way better. Yeah. Yeah. So you really empathize with withdrawal in this scene as he's shouting back at these furious refugees because He's he's totally in the right, you know. I, I don't think it's just protagonist goggles to say, or you know, POV goggles to say that that he's right. Like you can understand his impulse to try to defend himself, while you, as the reader, know full well that it's pointless to do so. Yeah, and I, I think along with this idea that everything is going at different speeds, and the idea of the rattling and shaking reflecting the crowd, I think this really establishes that it's too late of it all. Right, mm-hmm. withdrawal is right. But the human frustration is understandable, too. And there's nothing to be done here anymore. I think what withdrawal thinks is no room for talking. Like the, the talking part of this this conflict is over. Like the, it, that it, we've already passed by that point. And it's just like inevitable at this point. This is going to blow up in some way. And like this woman gives this this passionate argument saying you can't control us. You put powers in charge of the city. You override our police force. You shut down and attack civil protests and assembly. You shove us into tents in the wintertime while powers get houses. You make us wait a year before we get four walls to call our own. And then you make us move. And like it's not that's not true, but it's not false either. 
right? Yeah, I'm, I mean, you can see you can see how this kind of rhetoric has has spread, and mm-hmm. um, like I mean, most of that is true. Like, I'm I'm looking for anything that's specifically false. Like, like we know the reasoning behind why, right, right, yeah, why they're going to put Swan Song up in a nice apartment. Um, but to someone on the outside, it's like she's a she's a murdering clone creature and you're giving her a nice apartment and you put me in a tent, you know, like, like you understand the rhetoric and, and why it would be appealing. Yeah. Um, I also really like that. Uh, they call, they call capes powers. They use the word powers. And I'm like, Oh, that's, mm-hmm. that's cool. That, that's just a very subtle thing. just thrown in there that, that the word cape is kind of cute. It's kind of, kind of almost a positive spin on it. Yeah. Calling calling them powers is more more of a like it emphasizes how scary they are and how they're they're above you and they think they're above you. Yeah, um, and it, I mean it, it literally dehumanizes them. They're not. It it takes the the human out of the parahuman. Yeah. and just focuses on the powers. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I like that. Uh, and and like I said, this is this is this is building to the the inevitability of it all. And I think at the end of seventeen Y, we'll see Fume Hood as she transforms Muse on the fact that this is inevitable and it's happening here now with me, but it could have happened. But even if, even if we had prevented it from happening today, like it would happen tomorrow or the next day or the next day or the next day. Like there's this feeling that this is what, this is what it was always going to be in the end. Mm -hmm. And that makes, that makes a very interesting point when we start like tying in this idea of critical moments, right. And this idea of, of choices and decisions, people making uh, a setting people on a path that ends them being here at this moment and how much of a difference that is going to end up making at the end of it all. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. So one fun thing uh, happening throughout both of these chapters is that there are hints, some explicit and some more subtle that Antares has had a hand in all of this. The most obvious large scale one is that Fume Hood is only here in the first place because of Victoria but the first explicit in-text mention of this fact is that Antares um, was the one who said something about how powers operate to withdrawal that then include him in to the reason why Finale's power wasn't cooperating. You know, it tended to go haywire sometimes. Um, and then that, of course, led to them deciding, hey, we, we, we should, you know, get into hero work a little bit more, led to them being here ultimately. Yeah, I, I love that you pulled this out because... Victoria is not in this chapter. Well, I guess she is very, very briefly, um, but she's not in these two chapters. These these are not about her, but her she's all over it. She's absolutely all over it. And I think that ties back to what we were talking about is this idea of these critical moments that that lead you. Everyone, the major malfunctions, Fume Hood, the, this team is here now because of Victoria. They mm-hmm. absolutely are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the capes are told to hang back because their presence is only agitating the refugees further. So they take a breather, uh, but it's not at all relaxing. Uh, withdrawal has to work to soothe Finale, and then he's relieved when Fumahood joins them. Yeah, and so, so one of the biggest purposes of the, of the major malfunctions throughout the earlier part of the story has been this idea to Victoria. They were this team of young capes who had managed to stay together 
for a long enough time that Victoria saw that and was really impressed by it. Um, it, it's, it's been their defining characteristic in the eyes of Victoria, um, a group that does good, but more importantly, does it together. And as we start this chapter, we really start to see in the specific ways in which this is this is so how they lean on each other and work together and cover for each other's weaknesses. We'll, we'll see this explicitly in some critical moments later in the chapter, but, but right here, we're laying the stage for this concept and we see withdrawal once again, soothe finale and this is the soothing of finale has been something we've seen in the book before but it's almost as if the the this chapter at the beginning here is reminding us of this situation so that it can really set up this kind of uh tripod of um support that that the major malfunctions create yeah yeah it's like you said priming us for kind of the structure of how this is going to go forward the the idea that the idea that that's kind of the the beautiful thing about these kids and what and why they've been selected to be our point of view for this extremely pivotal event in the story. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Fume Hood's role here is really important too. And I think having withdrawal, see Fume Hood get there and then visibly relax when she rejoins the team really do- goes a long way to establish her role in the group as well. Mm-hmm. Like we, we've seen the three of them together. We've seen Fume Hood as part of their group very tangentially, right? But we've never really gotten a good understanding of how much a part of this group she's become over the past few, I don't know, days. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. tough to know what's going on. I, I, I guess I got the sense it was two or three weeks. Like yeah. It's kind of my subjective sense. It's a, it's a, um, it's a relatively short amount of time but i feel like when you're in like constant when you're in the trenches constantly right a lot of time goes a long way so and i think it makes clear that she is she is and has become an important member of this group it's it's basically like they they provided something that she needed but didn't know it yeah and she provided something that they needed but didn't know it yeah absolutely absolutely so as they're uh, continuing to kind of hang back, withdrawal sees a young writer explicitly described as being about his age, pull a gun and point it at people. And then they, they, they kind of move into action. Carrie added provides an immovable base that Heath can then use to stabilize his, his pill popper. And he disarms the kid with a shot from his, his weapon um, using the magical compression fluid that violates physics. And it's awesome. It's really awesome. Um, I, I like that they had team up to do this, right? It's like a team move. Um, yeah yeah and and they do it really like fluidly and casually and don't even yeah. really remark on it i thought that was cool yeah, yeah. and I, I really like that you pulled that uh explicitly about his age because mm-hmm. that is the, the book does go out of the way to draw our attention to that fact and it will do it again with finale by the end of this chapter and that matters right I, I think what it's specifically doing here is trying to draw a line between the people on the different sides of this argument they are about the same age they could have been each other and it is really just circumstance and that 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 has created has drawn this line between them right mm-hmm. like withdrawal did not choose to become a cape um this kid did not choose to be unpowered like it's just it's circumstance put them on different sides of this yeah. divide circumstance and really like you know, a- a- accident like like I, sure. I'm I'm inclined to like at first I just kind of thought it was a, a bit darkly funny that when he shoots the kid with the with the red pill and it like explodes he's he's he realizes like oh that just looked like I just blew blew the kid up and he just exploded in a red into a red <laughs> mist and and that that was kind of funny in the moment and then it I'm, is, yeah. but then you think about it and you're like yeah but like that's exactly the kind of like misinterpretation everyone in the crowd is going to see that and misinterpret it which is kind of a microcosm of what has been happening all along where the capes are trying to do one thing, but their actions, it's so easy to misinterpret their actions and misunderstand their actions and their motivations. 
Um, I, I think that's something that this book really just does a good job of doing pretty constantly. Right. Like, and it doesn't draw too much attention to it here. Like there's no specific moment here where the book is, is kind of forcing you to conclude that, Hey, um, this could all just be a big misunderstanding, but it's still there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So previously finale had apparently been in- inadvertently blocking withdrawals, exhaust vents and causing his agility frame to begin to overheat. So once he finds this out and sees that she's really upset and thought that he was going to be mad at her, he tries to reassure her that no harm was done. Um, but then he's interrupted in the middle of kind of reassuring her by the kid who had the gun saying just exactly the wrong thing, saying it was the start. And basically he says something and then, and then finale, uh, sorry, um, withdrawal thinks it was the stars aligning in a way that delivered the words home. Yeah. I, I love this. I, I like, I mean, I love, we once again to get to see what finale's fear is and exactly how withdrawal counters that fear by supporting her. And then we move into this war story moment. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, he's got a reminder of, of his trigger event specifically in what you just called out. And then like the conceit of this thing is the then portions of this, uh, these chapters are being relayed to each other, right? They are telling Fumehood about their trigger events. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't get to see that part, but we do see the then in them. Um, yeah. But, and, and I, I, I like, I, I like, it's like he goes, he says war story, the one all of us have. He doesn't say this is my trigger event. I'm going to tell you my trigger event, but he does say that. Um, and he kind of looks at finale and there's this, this great moment where it's like, it really wasn't fair to expect her to get that. <laughs> yeah. I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's really easy to miss the fact that the implication is that they are all sharing their trigger events. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, like you said, we, we jump back to withdrawals. Then his trigger event uh, where his crappy mom screams at him as he suffers through delirium tremens. And he thinks about how he drinks alcohol to distance himself from his mother's choices and her world to quote unquote lubricate his days, uh, lubricate the days, which, which I mean, that's just, that's just too good. Fucking shards, man. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I I think we already talked about how the shakes are represented. I think that's a really good, I mean, the idea that his name is withdrawal and that was literally Uh his trigger event. It's just perfect. It's just like, it's just like, I'm, we've said this a million times before, but how many fucking capes have we seen in the past 3 million words? And we're still at a point in the story where I can go, damn, yeah. that's clever as yeah. fuck. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So the, the, the pattern of, of these chapters, the, the first cycle completes um, the first sequence as we head into his critical moment, the critical moment uh, is his joining the team or at least joining with carry added. Uh, who gives him an ultimatum that he can't use any drugs. And he thinks to himself that this ultimatum perhaps is what saved him. Mm-hmm. And this is the moment where the, the the structure of the arc kind of changes away from what we expected, right? Because we saw a, a now, so we assumed there was a then, but then we get this. And, and because it's a different section ba- break, because it's literally titled A Critical Moment, it's almost as if the book is telling you, Pay extra special attention to this. This is really important. This is really important for what I'm doing. Pay attention. Um, And of course, that is true. That is absolutely true. These critical moments end up being rather critical to what the the thematic resonance of these two chapters are. This idea, this general idea um, that 
in this moment, things could have gone differently. They could have gone a different way. They could have broken up. He could have decided not to, to he could have decided to reject her ultimatum, but they prioritized staying together. They prioritized prioritize trying to remain connected over breaking up. Uh, they, they prioritized each other. And, and in those critical moments, that's what we see again and again and again throughout this chapter. And I love, I love the structure of it and we'll get right into finales right now, but the structure of it, like creates this feeling like you do bam, bam back to back. And that's, that's enough of a repetition there where you start to like your brain starts to make the connection. And then it's a while before we see Carrie edits um, that really gets your three for three that you're like, yep, this is absolutely what this is. I think it's clever the way it does that. Yeah. Um, just to kind of riff on what you said there, the, the idea of, of the, the commonality between their critical moments is I feel um, connection in a word, right? In, yeah, in some yeah. in some cases, it's the other member of the team reaching out to them. In some cases, it's them needing to reach out to to another member of the team. In some cases, it's them having another member of the team reach out to them and then realizing that they can't let that member of the team be sad, and so they reach back. You know, so so it, it's all it all just has to do with connections being obtained and and acknowledged and appreciated yeah and it's a a circle right because i mean it's like we see literally here withdrawal uh is supported by carry added uh withdrawal pays that forward and supports a finale and then it's finale that supports carry added Mm -hmm. and then it's just it's like they are they it's this contained loop of support there yeah amongst them yeah that's a great point that's a great point so yeah, then we skip over to um, finale, the second fastest and and second slowest um, during <laughs> d- during her critical nice. moment. Got her. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, so finale, Bella uh, accidentally uh, blows up withdrawals Tinker Lab, and we get a sense of how Bella is on the inside. Very very heavy on the negative self talk. Thinks she's a complete fuck up, and expects everyone else to think so too. Yeah, and and I love. I love that we kind of while we'll do this more when we get to her then and her nows. But even in this critical moment bit, we see kind of the the core of her problem. Right. She's not purposefully doing anything or misbehaving. Right. It's not like a purposeful like I'm not going to listen to you thing. It's like I got distracted and I forgot. Like mm-hmm. he specifically told me to steer clear and I, I got curious and I forgot about that steer clear part. And then I oopsied. And there's no there's no malicious intent there. There's no specific deliberate disobeying. It's it's not willful. It's just it's just the problem she has. And so it would be very unkind to this person to treat them as if these are willful disobeyings like and and, and chastise them and punish them for it. Uh, and that's yeah. not what our best boy here does at all. No. Yeah. So that that's the thing. It, it suits this critical moment motif because. Withdrawal is just happy she's not dead. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she, she expects him to be mad and he says, can't. No room for hating anyone. He said, not good for me and you're the person I'm least able to hate. And then she thinks never, not once ever, had she fucked up and felt loved after. Um, so yeah, that's like we just kind of outlined that's setting up this pattern that we're going to be 
or I, I mean, I guess that's the second beat in this pattern, right? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. We've, we've firmly established yeah. through repetition, this, this central idea. And I love that. N- never once had she fucked up and felt loved after it's beautiful. It's tragic and it's beautiful. Um, and, and I love th- this part ends on this line for bad things to happen and for good to come after it made the world seem brighter and better. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like this is one of those sentences that's going to be really important before the end of this book. Right. Um, yeah. that, bad things are going to happen, but good can still come after it. And the world can still be good despite the, all the bad things that are happening. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like that a lot. Um, but what does it take for that to happen? I don't know. We'll find out in 17. Do- well, I don't know why I'm advertising the next part of the show that we're about to do. Just continue. Yeah, several, yeah, just keep listening. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we skip back to finale's trigger event. Uh, she prepares for an extremely important musical performance, probably some kind of, a competitive musical group um, details don't really matter. I suppose uh, other kids in her group joke that it would be totally awesome if somebody broke out into a wild solo on the stage. Bella then rushes to sit at her station. The drums, the performance uh, brings her a kind of peace and, and tranquility and in, in the momentness and everything comes together to make her decide impulsively to uh, step into the silence at the end with her own grand finale Man, I love this. I love all of this. Like Wildbo's kind of use of and I don't know if dramatic irony is the correct term here, but basically what we're doing is we're we're the this thing is being sold to Bella and that that these people are clearly just trying to manipulate her, trying to use her slowness against her. And it's awful. And we, the reader, see it right away. Right. But but she can't. She can't see that. And we know this is going to happen. We know they're setting her up for this. And we're just like, no. Oh, this I hate these people. I hate it. Um, I yeah. think that's just really it's just really it's just an interesting way to 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 structure and frame this. Yeah, there's a big component um, for all three of these kids of like every actually including femehood of like everyone in their lives being garbage and, and abandoning them. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I really got like I joked about it at the beginning of the show. I really got on this whole like bad moms kick. Uh-huh. today when I was studying this and I convinced myself that there is verbiage in here that supports the idea that finale's mom specifically is bad, but there's not actually. Um, and I, I found that very interesting. Like, I, I don't know why I convinced myself that maybe just cause two out of three. And I just said, well, it's gotta be all three. Right. Um, her mom like seems a little like, like hovery, but we don't see her do anything specifically bad to her. Yeah, right. Uh, at worst, you get a sense that her parents don't really know what to do with her and right. are prone to just being like, all right, just put her in the garage with a drum kit because then we don't have to pay attention to her, which sure. is I don't really think it's bad parenting to let your kid just like do an activity they like. So, um, Heck yeah, especially when she likes it so much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but she definitely seems like she was scared of her mom. Like she it, you, you get this sense that at the very least, she's not being she doesn't feel supported by her mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she, the, the the fear that one screw up in a uh, a concert could lead to her drums being taken away from her seems to suggest there is something there. But yeah, yeah there, it's not explicit. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I, I just really like the writing of this section, Matt. Like there's not a lot of musical stuff in these books, but. I don't know, like the way this was written was it really worked on me, right? Like the the rhythm of it, like the drumstick down, boom, violins in slow and quiet first drumstick down, boom, uh, boom, bada, boom, tomb. Like I just it's just like this. It has a real feeling of of writing music kind of. And I really liked it. 
Yeah, it, it's kind of it is really fun because you're you're so in Finale's head that the, these onomatopoeias spread out throughout the text just feel very natural. Yeah, um, you're like, yeah, this is this is her inner life. This is the way she thinks. It's mm-hmm. totally totally reasonable. Like it would be it would be jarring <laughs> if like Victoria started like thinking to herself, "Boom, ba da 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 tomb." Yeah, um, but this, I think, this uh, works perfectly. I think Victoria's inner uh, rhythmic beats is fuck, fuck, yeah. f- fuck, yeah. fuck, fuck, yeah, fuck me, yeah, <laughs> um, fucking why, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, she gets partway into her dramatic solo, and then a man grabs her and pulls her off stage, and he says terrible, upsetting, foreboding things to her. You know, I don't think he's like trying to terrorize her. I think he's just insensitive and he doesn't really understand the situation. Yeah. I mean, this guy really sold to me the experience of what it's like to be finale. Right. Mm -hmm. Because this guy just kind of comes out of nowhere and we have no idea who he is. We have no idea where he came from, why he is the one pulling her off the stage who like and we never learn this. The text never like explains who the heck this person is. And we can guess that maybe he's like a stage manager or something that like works for the venue or works with something that like sees the way this is going and like gets her off the stage really quick before everyone turns on her or something. And we can assume that maybe the, the insensitive things that he's saying are maybe like in his mind or even in his tone, a little more sarcastic, and a little more jokey yeah. that she, than she reads them. But yeah, I mean, like it, it just I, I just love because I, I remember finishing the section. I was like, who the fuck was that guy? And I was like, oh, right. I'm in finale's head. Like she literally is just like has trouble following what's going mm-hmm. on. And I, I, I just really like I, that's what when you're talking about tone and, and voice of each of these three kids. This is the one that this that really made me feel like this is this is finale's POV. Yeah, you know, like um, I, I thought this I, I kind of want to zoom in on this moment because I thought this is a great little sample of of life like slice of life thing because because i feel like this kind of thing happens to kids where or a certain kind of interaction between adults and kids where like an adult will say something and and they will mean it in kind of a like sarcastic not not necessarily mean way and then the kid will just hear it as just like a, a a cruel indictment of them as a human being and it'll just like stick with them forever yeah and I, like, I think that's happened to me. And it's the kind of thing that you can just imagine happening where like the adult doesn't think anything of it. Like they would say that to another adult and the other adult would just kind of laugh. Like that's just the, 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 the sorts of games adults play. And I think sometimes adults forget. And, and this is salient to me because I have kids and, and I'm kind of I, I kind of am used to them not catching like layers of of subtext and sarcasm that I'm putting into things, obviously like, like they're just not, it's not going to work. Um, so, so like this is a very realistic thing, um, especially for someone described as being developmentally delayed. But I think just in general, this kind of interaction between adults and kids feels very kind of authentic where like she, she's like terrified and shaking and he's like, Whoa, I was, I was just kidding. Like, I, I, like, like from, from his point of view, he assumes she must be some kind of like routine troublemaker, to do this in the first place. So she's probably used to being chewed out, um, yeah. but, but that's not really what's happening. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good way of framing it. And I, and I know exactly what you mean because I definitely, I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most about being a parent one day, mm-hmm. because I have things in my life that I specifically remember my father saying to me. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you, 
he does not remember saying those yeah. things because he did not think this is some like this all all powerful wise saying that's going to imprint on my life forever. Uh, it's just him making a joke or saying something. And like, I, I think that's that's very, very true. And it terrifies me with having my own kids like, oh, God, what if I make a joke or say a thing or do something? Um, one time uh-huh. I was babysitting my niece and she kept saying she was going to she kept quacking. Uh-huh. And I said, if you quack 10 more times, you're going to turn into a duck. And she believed me and she started freaking out. <laughs> so so I got what you mean there. Yeah, I get it. And just let me assure you on, on the flip side, you can tell them, all right, I'm about to impart some really serious and, and meaningful advice and they will just immediately tune you out. So, <laughs> perfect, perfect. Um, yeah, can't wait. They don't have time for that. So anyway. I, I think that was fun to talk about. I, I, mm-hmm. I thought that was a great moment. So anyway, she's terrified enough that when the other students arrive, followed by her mom, she triggers in terror of this looming crowd of threats, which she perceives as being, you know, about to take away this very important thing to her. And, and you know, I don't normally ever look at the Weaver Dice materials when I'm thinking about in-story triggers. Um, but I just wanted to point out that this is all very, very, very consistent. Like uh, the... The barrage blaster subclassification is a power you get in response to a large number of threats, which is exactly what's happening. And and she gets this ability to fire multiple multiple blasts. It's it's sort of a classic barrage blaster power. Um, Yeah, yeah. It's also perfect for a person who got in trouble for this incessant need to just make that noise. Yeah, exactly. And her, her power literally like encourages her to the point where she doesn't get to do her big drum solos her power solos her power starts acting up yeah fucking with her it's it's so good yeah fucking shards man i know so we cut right from that to the now uh, where she's facing psychologically the same situation a crowd of people who want to hurt her and take away the only thing she's good at it's a the text makes the explicit parallel yeah um and this is really uh this is really, I think, where we start to maybe get what the chapter's doing, right? Right. I mean, I, I, I thought it about this point. I was like, oh, I think we're building toward a second trigger situation. Yeah. And, and of course, I, I thought at that time, I was like, oh, wait a second. The situation, you know, we, we had that line about the stars aligning for withdrawal, meaning like, oh, th- this is really close to his trigger situation. We just got another hammer blow of like, oh, this is really, really close to to Finale's trigger situation. So I was thinking this is going to be a second trigger involving one of the malfunctions. And I think at one point toward the end of Caryatids, I was like, oh, is this going to be a second trigger that like somehow includes all of them? And that's why it's so bad is it's like a mega multi-second trigger, uh, which I think emphasizes how it was a pretty big misdirect. I mean, you're you're sort of right, but you're wrong on the target. Yeah, I mean, I I, I absolutely think that the book is kind of leading you towards that. Yeah. Concept. I think this idea like it's doing it's doing a lot of work to show the connection between these these three while simultaneously creating the situation in which they are extremely close to the feeling and emotions and stressors behind their original trigger event. And those two things combined, I think, are absolutely supposed to connect in your head where you're like, "Uh oh, we're going to get some teen titans. Yep. Um, but what we get. <laughs> oh, my God. So, what? <laughs> Okay, good. That was good. Thank you. Uh, but what we get is so, so much better. Yeah, yeah. Thematically. So, yes, themat- and yeah, thematically. So um, Finale is forced to onomatopoeia the crowd 
when a girl, once again, described as being about her age, pulls a gun on her. Yeah, it's like they're hitting that that beat again like a drum. Yeah, it's true. And and it's interesting that it's it's always kid kid their age plus gun, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and and it ends up being basically the same thing all the way through pretty much. Yeah, I mean, we talked about guns as power. Yeah. a lot in in through, through this book. And yeah. yeah, I mean, they they are the one they're really in this universe like one of the things that a non-powered person can do to to attempt to grasp the power level of these capes. Yeah. Um so I think it I think it works really well there. Yeah. So here at the end, they get a call from Aunt Terry's, presumably synchronizing our timeline with hers as she has the brainwave that the anti-parahumans are going to be a big problem. <laughs> I like the response to that is, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're aware. Yeah. Um, I just love this this writing right here. Uh, the text says, this right now felt bad. Bad like she finally realized what the, uh, what other people tended to feel in their guts before they decided not to do stuff. <laughs> it's like yeah uh, that's great i love it because it's like a feeling that she's never had before um yeah. but it's bad enough and i think that is again supporting this uh oh malfunction second trigger thing right where yeah. like they're feeling feelings that they've never felt before that's how bad the situation is and i really it, it is pushing us toward that moment for sure yeah um and just as a writing technique like like one one thing it, this is probably like the thing you learn on the, on the first day of writing school never been to writing school so i don't write, know writing school writing school i assume that there's a that there are writing schools um but but like you can generally create the emotion that you want in your reader just by having your character experience that emotion so if you're basically if you're basically saying um finale felt tremendous foreboding the reader's going to feel tremendous foreboding Sure. But you have yeah. to dramatize that in a way where they feel it. You can't just say that. And, and that's what this is exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, it, it is it is taking the feeling you want your reader to feel, but layering it over her character. Right. Yes. So it's not just it's not just this felt bad. This felt bad, um, like the way that I know other people seem to feel when they decide not to act on stuff. Yes. Um, yeah. So just just a good example of the craft. basically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the malfunctions start to pull back, and then Contessa exits uh, Earthsea with teacher and a handful of capes. <laughs> this is the perfect oh fuck moment, right? Yeah. Like we we've we've built up this feeling, this foreboding feeling, and then oh look who it is! And putting aside what you think about Contessa and her role in all this, and frankly, I don't even know what I feel. But having two chapters where Victoria is focusing on her and trying to crack her and what her. Uh, what her role in all this thing is and then watching her arrive on the scene that we think is going to be ground zero for the shit yeah. is like the best oh fuck mo- yeah. moment in the yeah. book yeah just, it's just like if, if there was any doubt at all that this was this was another misdirect somehow <laughs> that is utterly trashed when she shows up you're like ah crap yep 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 hooray so, here we go yep moving into 17.y Ah, uh, this one. This one. I'm going to finish this chapter being super positive, Matt. Just you wait and see. Okay, I'm well. I'm going to be super positive. You got to get through this first uh, part, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this part. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the parts that I found difficult. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're treated to carry out its trigger event, starting with the dog licking her eyeball. Um, and we spend uh, the first big chunk of this chapter not quite sure what's going on in a way that i think prompts you to imagine the worst sure uh, i mean for my part 
uh, for the first bit, I thought maybe she had locked in syndrome or something because, uh, I mean, eventually various hints make it clear that she's ambulatory unless her parents are home. And then at at that point you start to put pieces together, but for for me, it took a little while. Um, Right. And I think, I think it takes a while by design because she's using this very abstract imagery that, uh, that is, is like just who she is, how she describes and experiences her world. But, um, I I think it's doled out to us in a really fun way, because as you said, we start, we open the chapter on Carrie's dog licking her eyelid and sticking its tongue inside her mouth. Yeah. And you're like, that's gross. Yeah, that's, that's unusual. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I mean, I love my dog and my dog licks my face a lot, but I don't know about just being like chill with having its tongue in my mouth. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe some people just really like their dogs. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I think it becomes it becomes very clear that she is paralyzed in some way. She does not have the ability to move her body. Yeah. Um, and and that and we like slow roll that out the full extent of that until we see the root cause of it. It's it's mm-hmm. just a really fun like slow ramp to reveal moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of great writing in this chapter that focuses on conveying very hard to articulate ideas. Like you you were just talking about the abstract kind kind of imagery. Um, so for example, this feeling of her mind being a balloon attached to her body with a long string, um, it, it looked like like she's looking down on everything with detachment but she's not really looking down on the world she just feels like she is that, that right. it's meant to convey the, the the sense of detachment and not being actually present sure um and then of course the fear that keeps encroaching on her mind and, and then fading away which i just have to read this the kind that this kind of fear came and went like black food coloring or ink dropped into water it made scary shapes at first dark and unfurling like a black octopus wrapped in a cloak then expanded out, reaching for every part of her brain. I mean, it's beautiful imagery yeah. in, in that it's haunting and terrifying. But I, I love, I mean, I love both of these images, the the balloon floating above her, uh, her head being this balloon, that that ink. And this really gets into what we've been talking about throughout these chapters, this idea of their the uniqueness of their voice. This is uniquely Carrie, the way she experiences the world, the way she describes these two main feelings in this kind of very abstract imagery is uniquely her. And I, I just really like it. I really like it. It makes, it makes you know. And like, it's not just in this moment where she's drugged, right? Because we see throughout the, the nows and the critical moments that she also attaches this kind of abstract imagery just to her life in general. Um, yeah. And it's, it's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It sets up this sense that, that, um, this is how she relates to the world, even even not when she's drugged, I think. Yeah. yeah. And and I love it. in this moment, the text really reinforces the, the imagery with in, in kind of subtle ways. Right. There's there's constant talking about bobbing and floating uh, descriptors and everything. There's the text likes to frame her body as independent and separate from her. Like when the, the guy is tra- threatening to tattoo her, um, it says it took him three times to touch the right spot on her body's cheek, not her cheek, her body's cheek as if mm-hmm. it is a separate entity um, that is still hers, but, but separate from her brain. I, I, it's like very subtle in the ways that it, it reinforces this general feeling created by this imagery. And I just really like it. I really yeah. like it a lot. Yeah, me too. So two drunk men enter her bedroom where she's lying immobile. Uh, this by itself is terrifying to us as the readers. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly, Carrie herself isn't so alarmed by this um, for the obvious reasons that we would expect. She, she's actually more scared that she's going to vomit and choke on the vomit, uh, which 
seems like it's something that has happened before. Uh, th- th- that's kind of yeah. her main fixation. Like, like even when he starts asking if she wants a tattoo, her re- her reaction is she did not. But the distraction of this new situation was a relief from the heart stopping blackness that flooded her head. Like she's literally relieved that this weird creepo is going to tattoo her face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's not like it's so funny because like you read that she did not and it feels like this detached indifference, mm-hmm. but it's just that the terror of her life is so focused elsewhere that it's like, you don't have bandwidth to be terrified of this stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm just in the state of, of existential terror constantly. Yeah. I mean, it, like she cares more about the, the ripped poster, um, than about the fist fight that's about to break out between these two guys. And, and yeah, so just, just overall paints this strong impression that she's just, so detached from everyone and everything except your fear. Yeah. And I, I think that's like the, 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 the way that the fear is framed throughout this is like very specifically to the feelings around this balloon head versus this body and the connection between them. Like we get like the fear is in her balloon head and has nowhere to go. It, it has to sit in her head because she's not connected to her body. It can't go down the cord. I just really like that, that, mm-hmm. that addition to that imagery. It's like taking the idea of the ink and the balloon and, and melding them together into this one image. I really like mm-hmm. it. Yeah, yeah. I I want to zoom in on this poster though because I think this is we get we get a little more info on her here. Like she she really distraught over the destroying of this poster and says, "This is the first band I ever actually liked. I don't like people and I don't like bands with people." Chris Cross Chorus is entirely digital. Digital voices and digital faces, absolutely nothing scary about them. And it, I love this because it's this this it really helps build this image of this person who just is totally detached um, from humanity, right? Like she's living in this, uh, like drug induced detachment. Um, and she doesn't want to be around people. She doesn't like people. Um, and I, I just think it works really, really well to kind of really sell the, uh, the critical moment that comes up a little bit later. Yeah. And and it's emphasizing that it's not just like, this is how she thinks in general. She's, she's scared of people, Period. Not yeah. just not just right now. The, the fact that the fact that her favorite band is chosen because she just doesn't like people. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's important because it's not like it's it's not like their personality is entirely defined by the impetus of their trigger event. Right. They mm-hmm. have the, they have personality traits outside of this. Um, I think each of them, each of them had something else that was going on um, that is uniquely them that relates into their trigger, but is still independent of it like yeah 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 so ultimately bottom bunk does successfully distract cooler away from giving her a tattoo on her face well that's you know silver linings i guess yeah i mean there's there's she does get this one moment where somebody kind of stands up for her but it's it's kind of too little too late right yeah i mean they're still cool with this whole arrangement yeah, so. exactly. That, that's, that's the thing is you, is this person is obviously, well, that's the thing. They seem really uncomfortable with this whole arrangement, but they're not doing anything about it. Right, right. Like, yeah, yeah. And Carrie it almost seems to hate bottom bunk more than cooler. Yeah. And he's the one defending her. So, yeah, I mean, it's very, it, it, it strikes me as a very kind of like bullshit, like not real defense. Like, yeah, it's just like, like yes, you've crossed this one line, but all the other lines, I'm fine with those. Yeah, or, or too cowardly to do anything about. Sure, sure. So let's talk about this focus on needles for a second, because sure. withdrawals trigger involved an IV. Uh, his weapon is a giant syringe. 
Caryatid gets routinely injected with drugs against her will, um, threatened to have the needle broken off in her and almost involuntarily tattooed. Um, no needles in Finale's story, but uh, even Fume Hood's trigger involves syringes, as we'll find out later. Um, so it's just, is there, do you think there's anything to this in a way that we can dig into? Um, I mean, I, I like it. I like it uh-huh. a lot. I did sit here and think for a while about finale and try to like come up with a way where we could work finale into this needle idea, but I, 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 I don't, I can't find it. So if someone else can find a way in which finale fits into this needle idea, let us know because I would love that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think there's like an easy to grasp overarching metaphor that we're like, ah, oh, yes, of course, of course they all are connected to needles in some way. I do think it's just a subtle way of reinforcing how these characters are, are, connected to each other they they have formed connections to each other and a lot and they have similar events uh, right in their in their hi- their history the only other real kind of tie back is that we saw them all being distinctly di- uncomfortable when they were fighting syringe woman sure um but again that's that's more of a yeah that makes sense in a in a plot and character sense yeah. but um which is which is fine yeah i just always like to, to dig for for deeper things I mean, there's this general idea that in needles are this invasive thing, right? And yeah. they, they've had these lives where people were very invasive on in in everything. Um, yeah, right. Kind of violating their personal boundaries and yeah. and and yeah. I don't Except know. for good old Apple, but yep, yep. We'll get so, to that. Yep. So Carrie's brother, uh, who we hadn't even realized was in the bed with her, starts to scream, and when the mom comes to quiet him, saying. I told you to be quiet today. I asked you for one thing, which just made me want to punch her in the face. Uh, Carrie sees that he's been peeing blood. Carrie tries as best she can to urge her mom to do something about this, but that isn't much because she can't really move or speak. Uh, Then her mom drugs her again, and we learn at this point definitively that the kids have been kept heavily drugged for a full day at this point. So about here, she triggers getting the expected breaker power from drugs and dissociation. And her appearance reflects the ever-turning pages of the books that she read for Escape. Yeah, that, well, the the book imagery here is really wonderful. Um, it's something that I think I think we had had her her trigger just or her her power use described to us before, but this point of view section really nailing home the idea of uh, the pages of the book and how it represents that. I think is really wonderful. I think Victoria thought it looked like butterfly wings, um, which. You know, the fact that it, it's it actually represents book pages is, is cool. Yeah. 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 And and this is where you kind of realize that while I don't think finale's trigger relates specifically to her mom's action, each and every one of the major malfunctions trigger uh, occurred in relation to their mothers. Um, mm-hmm. Their their moms are there. Uh, they are around. They are doing something and the, they are triggering while they're there. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's and and, and even even. Um, even Fume Hood's mom is mentioned in her trigger. I think, I, I, you know, your your the, your relationship yeah. with your mom is supposed to be this relationship of of like perfect reliability, right? Like your mom is supposed to take care of you, and and all four of these people are people who feel like their mom, well, feel like or in actuality, uh, their mom is is selfishly focused on their own needs and and ignoring them. Um, I think you know, in Kiriad's case literally locking them in a room sure, um, and, ki- <laughs> and kind of hoping they die. Uh, yeah. So, so, so it makes sense like a, as a source of terrible 
um, trauma and, and pain um, that, that would cause a trigger event. It makes sense. Yeah. And, and the reason this matters, I think, is because the way in which the major malfunctions relationships with their mothers specifically compare to Fume Hood's relationship with her mother or the parts of it we see, I think matters in how you frame the uh, inciting incident of their trigger events and and therefore the people that they become after they trigger. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm getting ahead of ourselves because we'll talk about Fume Hood a lot when we get there, but I, this is, let's just keep this kernel in our mind because I think the way in which she describes her mom is unique in this regard. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So then back in the present... Uh, the malfunctions decide how to respond to Contessa's arrival. I really like this finale, this moment of genius that pops up here where she says, if this is a mistake, does that mean she's not being perfect or does it mean she's going to make a mistake perfectly? <laughs> and it's this really beautiful moment where Carrie added's like, she's not dumb. She's not mentally disabled, autistic, not mentally ill. She's just a little delayed and stunted, but sometimes she could say really smart things and have no idea she was doing it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, because that's yeah what's going on with contessa here man <laughs> I, I am glad you pulled that out because that's the question isn't it it is because <laughs> is the question because we know what happens the, so did she know something like this was going to happen or or not or or she or she did know it was going to happen but not how it was going to happen or right like like yeah it's it's a Per- perfect phrasing is she going to make a mistake perfectly or is she not being perfect yeah, yeah. um yeah and we, I mean, the answer is, I don't, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't think, I don't know if, I don't know if we're meant to know. I don't know if this is a thing that we get to know in this story, honestly. And, and you know what? I, I, a lot of people are going to disagree with me here on this one and that's fine. I don't think I really need to. I, I, I don't like, maybe it'll matter in the end, but I don't, I don't know if I need to specifically know. I like the ambiguity of it. I yeah. like, I like the idea that, that we can continue asking ourselves that question and, and not finding out. I mean, I, one way or the other, right. Um, Sure. But I, I like I like a little bit of ambiguity left because then you can kind of continue to ask yourself questions even yeah. after you've finished. Yeah. And then I can say things like Finale says here, I'm not really sure I get it, but you can explain it later. <laughs> uh, so um, Carrie at first can't move in response to Contessa arriving, but on Fume Hood's urging, she throws herself in Contessa's way and activates her impervious form. Um, I'm going to read this text. Her consciousness unfolded as though she were looking down at it all from above. She wasn't, but that was kind of how it felt when she viewed it all as a series of positions, colors, and textures with a focus that was predominantly on what was close to her, everything blurring out into paint-like splashes as they got further and further out. Um, that's that's great. It, it's reminiscent, but not mm-hmm. identical to her trigger setting, the, the, the drug the drug influence, the, the, the feeling of looking down and everything, although not actually... Uh, her consciousness unfolding, just like the pages of the book. It's yeah. just really cool. I like that writing a lot. I also like Fume Hood's role here. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you kind of see basically the re- the way the reason Cariata decides to step out and confront Contessa, which is a big fucking deal, is because Fume Hood offers her this idea of like it's kind of this Victoria esque idea, right? Of try to do what you won't regret tomorrow. Like think about, think about how tomorrow you is going to feel about your actions of today and do the thing that that person would be most satisfied with. And that's, that's a Victoriaism that Fume Hood is echoing here to our major malfunctions. And it is what causes her to summon the bravery to step out and stand in the way of Contessa. 
Yeah, I, w- I wish I had gone back and read that conversation between Fume Hood and, and Victoria in the first arc because I, I don't remember exactly what Victoria said to her, but I, I do wonder if that was in there somewhere. I don't. Sure. Yeah, I mean, they've they've had a couple moments to talk That's throughout true. the book, so it might not have even been the first arc. But I, I mean, I I think one thing is absolutely sure is that Fume Hood has been this presence in the story from the very beginning and has jumped back in the story and interacted with Victoria, and you've kind of seen through Victoria's eyes, Fume Hood's path. Um, and she has absolutely played a part in the direction of that path. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So anyway, Contessa easily defeats uh, Caryatid by saying her brother's name and then damaging <laughs> an innocent car with her forehead. Um, she has teacher put in the trunk of the car, which she prepares to steal. Uh, and then she pauses long enough to either justify herself or spout out a lie, which serves the same purpose of delaying things. Um, uh, she says no more than two permanent injuries or deaths. So that's that's either wrong or a lie, right? Right. She's one or the other. Yep. She snags one of Fume Hood's spheres out of the air and uses it on the malfunctions, and then drives away while they're distracted. Hey, let's talk about how Contessa can't help but be a massive dick sometimes, right? Yeah. And I think I think this is the essential problem of her power and why she's always going to come off dickish. Right. Because this general idea of uh, this is this this interaction with Carrie added, I think, is the perfect example of the thing that was introduced last week of the the idea of time and number of steps as the most crucial consideration of her power. Right. Because I'm sure there's an infinite number of ways you could have made Carrie added get out of your way. Right. But this is the one she picks. Right. Because it's the one with the it's, least amount of steps. Yeah. One step. There you go. Yeah. Um, and it is cruel and and um and emotionally damaging, but it's effective. And that's the one it's gonna pick. And and like so this general idea of like knowing that explaining this like she's walking out amongst this high pressure situation, like almost this like slow power walk, like this slow-mo power walk where people are like, Hey, stop. And she's like, I don't care about you. And she's like, just like completely indifferent to everyone's warnings and threats. And it's like the, because of her power, like she knows that stopping to explain the situation to a person might not be optimal. Right. Like, like if you know for a fact that, Oh, explaining, uh, explaining why I'm, doing this certain thing actually doesn't help my success rate in doing the thing anymore, then you're just not going to do it. So it's just always going to come off as dickish. It just naturally is. And I just, I I think that's the fascinating thing about the power is that like, it's always going to be that way. Always. Yeah. Well, it's still an open question whether a single word she said in this book has been from her brain versus from the shard just saying, make the following mouth noises to get the human chess pieces to do what you need them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like, is she really, does she really feel like she needs to justify herself to these people or was it calculated that it would increase, you know, it, it would guarantee her success if she just happens to be saying these words as she's going through these motions. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the, that, that maybe unanswerable mystery of Contessa, but yeah. uh, I, I do like that. Like we, that the book does set up the situation where we know for a fact, as you said, that this is wrong, like yeah. that, that everything she says here is wrong. And the question is not was Contessa right or wrong, but was she intentionally right or wrong? Yeah. Right. So then we kind of loop back to explain why uh, saying her brother's name 
was such a powerful, uh, had such an impact on her. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carrie added's critical moment is some kind of social worker informing her that her brother doesn't want any contact with her. Uh, the pain of losing the only part of her life that she had wanted to keep is too much, and she uses her power to distance herself from it, retreating into her breaker form. Bella, uh, finale, joins her on the roof and hugs her, drawing her back to her humanity. And she thinks, couldn't let Bella be concerned, couldn't let Bella shoulder the tears all by herself, not when they came from a place of such unfiltered caring. She let herself be human again. Yeah. Best line ever. It's yeah, it's a beautiful moment. And there's our three for three, right? These three critical moments in which the major malfunctions chose connection to each other over something else. Withdrawal respected Carrie's zero tolerance, drugs and alcohol stance. Carrie chose not to abandon her humanity support finale and finale was embraced and accepted by withdrawal even after messing up. That is our circle. That is our circle of support. That is our tripod of the major malfunctions. And it is beautiful. Um, I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, it's it's really gets you. There's a there's a part like it's a very small beat, but I think it matters a little bit like when Carrie added is talking to this uh, social worker guy on the phone. um, The text is really emphasizing every time he flips pages, like as he's like talking to her, he's going through her notes and like the text really zooms in on the fact that he's flipping more pages, flipping more pages. And I just thought that that linked up to her general flipping pages imagery was like really, really powerful. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I, I didn't notice that at all. I mean, the the guy on the phone is is um, uh, just quite a character, right? Like, yeah, just, just like, uh, mm, mm, yes, I don't. Oh, uh, yeah, mm, mm, yeah. I, I can really, <laughs> I can just imagine the, the voice of that character in my head. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So then, uh, somewhat surprisingly to me, we switched to Fumehood, um, and you know, she's using her spheres for crowd control, but she's doing so with anxiety. She's conscious that she could permanently harm someone. Um, she reflects on how it had been easier being an asshole and not caring about people. It is the asshole side stronger. <laughs> no, quicker, easier, more seductive. But I mean, this is this is, I think, especially when especially when you go back and read the chapters again. Right. As we do in preparation for the show, you really can notice the pieces start to move into place um, because this is the, the fume hood section and it's, and it's opening on this idea, opening us on the, this idea that being good is hard. It's continuously hard, but fume hood is still doing it. And even when she's sitting here musing about how much easier it would be to just not give a shit about the malfunctions, to just not give a shit about civilians, it would be easier to do that, but she doesn't. She, and she chooses continuously not to go that way, not to do that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's really setting the stage for the last movement of this this chapter that is going to go into this decision to try and to yeah. keep trying. Right. Yeah. I mean, from the beginning, we're, we're creating this idea that it's it. This is so hard for her. This is this is unnatural for her. It's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Nothing about it feels good in the moment. But but the the con the the counter the counterpoint, the 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 other option is to give in to what what feels easier and be the kind of person who she doesn't respect at all. Yeah. Be be part of the problem. Be someone basically be someone who she hates. Yeah. And and yeah, so that's that's the so yeah, let's just move on, yeah. So basically it's this insane battle at this point like over the course of these two chapters it's gotten worse and worse. It went from them being asked to kind of stand down because people were getting too agitated to 
it's kind of just a fight now. I mean, that she she's having to 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 battle. We've got these uh, actively aggressive anti parahumans with guns hidden in the midst of these like run of the mill angry and disgruntled Gimel refugees and the Earth Sea security forces on the other side, um, and and the the patrol block people. Despite how terrible this all is, it feels better to her than her whole life prior to it because she's helping these kids. Um, or perhaps they're the ones who are helping her. Yeah, I love that idea, right? Like the, helping them felt good. She was their mentor in some senses, telling them how villains operated, what the rules of the cape scene were, how to do stuff in a fight like throwing punches or thinking about a crisis. But they were really the ones who were rubbing off on her. And yeah. it's like this 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 idea that like, you know, talking about like, remember in Unbreakable where he's like, you're miserable because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that, that idea that's so central to the character in that movie. That's what I kind of feel here, right? Like finally, finally for maybe the first time in her life, she's truly doing the thing that she's supposed to be doing. And that feels good. It feels right. And, and I, I love that. And then, you know, she's fucked because that's what the story does. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I do. I mean, I like this idea that like fume hood is kind of the Victoria, for the major malfunctions, right? Like that's what this, there are parallels between the two of them. We've seen the story draw and remind us of Victoria's influence. Um, and that's kind of what she's serving here. Their mentor, they're, they're not leader per se, but like what Victoria started out being for breakthrough in a way. Someone who had all these regrets and, and felt like she had something to give to these people due to her perspective, due to the mistakes she, she had made do the lesson she had learned just to say like, I want to protect these people from having to ever go through what I went through and make the mistakes that I made that that was both of their mentalities, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, that, I think that's, that's the thing is, is when the story starts, um, Fume Hood and, and Victoria really don't seem like similar people, but I think that they are actually in sort of similar places in their journeys in, in that they, they kind of feel like giving up. They kind of, they kind of both have given up in a way but this experience they have together then kind of pushes them to not give up. Yeah. Uh, I'm referring to, to the first arc, um, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. No, I think yeah. you're right. And we'll draw back to that specifically here in a bit. Yeah. Um, there's fire, f- f- a fire axe. Yeah, guys, Matt fire just wrote fire axe just in the script because yeah. we can't, we can't ever let that moment pass by oh. without commentating on it. Can't. I'm sorry. I, t- to be, to be fair, there's got to be a better name for that than Fire X. <laughs> Scott, you brought so much joy to so many people. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why you want to downplay this. Uh, um, guys, anyway. Fire X. It's not really on fire, guys, in case you didn't know. I mean, it. it might be. It's not really clarified in the guys, text. Guys, the that's true. <laughs> the axe is probably not on fire. Uh, the the PRT headquarters is not floating in the air. Apparently, are- Apparently, that was a common misconception, though. Apparently a lot of people thought that and, and they, they admitted I mean, I it. Was, I was definitely one of them. I think I was too, honestly. Like, I think that's why I wrote it that way. I think anyway, <laughs> anyway, so, uh, she's then confronted by a man with a gun wearing a gas mask. Uh, somebody seems like they're kind of ready for her specifically oh. has it in for her. Uh, yes. As we switch to her trigger event, Lauren has a meltdown at an outdoor burger stand <gasps> because mean girls are mean to her. I is, it fu- is it Fugly Bob? Is it, is it Fugly Bob's? I have to I know. Oh my there's, God. There's like no, I, I looked this up because I was curious. There's, I couldn't find any information about whether or not Lauren Fumehood was a Brockton Bay cape ever. 
Um, I couldn't find it, so I don't know. But I yeah. immediately like Fugly Pops. She did live in Boston, which is on the, on the East Coast. So. Yeah, that is I, sure. Yes, yeah, it's, it, it it's, was Fugly Pops. They also describe it as like a really shitty, awful city. Uh-huh. So I mean, it, Bay. it certainly sounds like <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so she flees the scene of her public littering and accidentally spits on or n- near. Um, a homeless woman mm-hmm. another homeless man confronts her about this tells her that she should apologize basically it's a situation that could have been de-escalated by just apologizing um, mm-hmm. yep. which she actually admits later uh, but she's too furious and, and somewhat scared of the situation so she tries to run and then she gets body checked by another homeless girl causing her to fall into a pile of used needles uh, basically fume hood's trigger is the apotheosis of her shitty background and lifestyle compounding back in her face Everything she hates about her life and herself and making it permanent with gross, stinky green gas bombs. Wonderful. Yep. What I love about this, Matt, is that throughout the course of these two chapters, we've now seen four trigger events. In three of them, these three children had fucking awful parents and friends and people around them that pushed them towards their trigger. Each of these kids is, I think it's fair to say, a victim of their circumstances, right? Yeah. They are out of control of the situation. And then we have fume hood fume hood triggered because, because fume hood was a bit of a dick. Uh-huh. <laughs> she escalated a situation when she didn't need to. I mean, yes, a girl pushed her into some needles, which is not good, but fume hood like created the conflict and escalated the conflict when she didn't need to. And, and then we go back, we're, we're, we're circling back around to this mom idea, right? Uh, the other three characters finale, maybe not textually, but maybe subtextually have bad moms. Fume hood yells at her mom in this section more than any of those people yell about their moms. And what did her mom do? What is the terrible thing her mom did that made fume hood say, fuck my mom so much. Tell, tell us Scott. She found a joint in her room and she grounded her because uh-huh. she had drugs in her room. <laughs> Man, what a dick. Yeah, that's worse. Way Monster. worse than Carrie's mom, who punished her daughter by drugging her and leaving her in her room. <laughs> interesting, interesting <laughs> parallel. Yes. Um. Um. I, but no. But I. I think. I think that's so important, right? Because we'll, as we'll see, Fumehood's path forward is through these guys. Fumehood was a person who uh, triggered because of someone else, and. Uh, because of her actions to other people, whereas the major MF actions triggered because of actions on them. And they, the victims, took this and decided to do good, whereas Fume Hood took it and decided to only do more bad. And and so her path to redemption, path forward, path to growth, path to whatever you want to call it, is now through these people that are the same kind of people she hurt over and over and over again throughout her life. And I just think that's 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 beautiful. Yeah, right. That's that's what's being set up for us. And and, and the text even kind of makes it clear that that's how she sees herself, actually, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in a little bit. We'll get there pretty soon. But that's yeah. that's like she's she's the kind of person who could have gone down a really a really dark path. I mean, she was a villain, right? She was a villain. Yeah, she, she was totally dissipated and, and, and you know, victimized people even, you know, as a villain. Right. Like her whole life essentially uh, yeah. up and up until she, she went to jail and then she, I mean, she decided ki- yeah, she killed that pregnant woman. Um, well, yeah, she killed the baby, but yeah, but the, sorry. Yeah. The baby, yeah, yeah. I, I do like the connection between she accidentally killed that baby by not like 
hitting it directly with her power by, uh-huh. by getting near her. And she didn't actually spit on that woman. She just spat oh, near her. That's a good point. And like just this like collateral damage thing where it's not even the intended target. It's just the things around the intended target. I like that connection. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually like that this idea that even now, even now that she's remorseful somewhat, she's like, I'm still not sure if that woman wasn't trying to get hurt, (laughs) 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 which, which is, which I I feel is just very human, right? Like, right. Yeah. Like I'm even, even though I still kind of just feel like this is bullshit, I'm still going to try to do my best. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, back in the present, uh, she's getting her ass kicked by the guy wearing the gas mask as she ruminates on how she feels like she's completely failed her entire life to make any kind of positive difference or to change anything. Um, yeah. And this is when I think I realized what the end of this chapter was going to be. Um, we've seen here like, like the malfunctions through wild Bo's use of, uh, okay. So in film they're called L cuts. Like when the, when the, the sound from the preceding scene follows over into the image of the next scene, uh-huh. it's called an L cut. And so this is kind of like an emotional L cut. I'm going to call him a W cut. It's, <laughs> it's probably has an official term for this, but I'm not a fucking PhD in writing. So it's a W cut. Sue me. Wait, the you point didn't go is to writing school. I didn't go to writing school. Uh, the point is, uh, the, we see in this moment that the emotional feeling of that trigger event carries over directly into the fume hood now right we go specifically from all these people around her loathing and revulsion is all directions inward included choking her uh now we move on to in the very next section uh surrounded on our side by hatred revilement disgust aimed at her right so we we have emotionally connected those two things together through our wonderful w cut um and this is what what this firmly does is i think establish oh yeah We've done this thing where we're relating trigger events back to uh, what is happening right now and that emotional core. And I was like, OK, it's going to be Fume Hood. This is it. I got it. Oh, no. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think it does that so wonderfully. Yeah. 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 Right. The, the, the pattern repeats like and, and basically it, it's faked us out each time prior. It's been like, oh, it's going to. Oh, no, it's going to be finale. Oh, oh, no, it's definitely going to be carry added. This this is just too horrible. Sure. Yeah. And and then now we're here and it's like, oh, I get it. I see. This yeah. is it. Yep. Yep. So Fume Hood notices that the man is tracking her through the gas um, easily. And, and she realizes that it's due to her fan, <laughs> which Victoria had made her aware was a weakness. So she ditches the fan and then she tries to get the drop on him. And you're like, yeah, thanks, Victoria. And that, that doesn't work. It yeah. Doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. Um, um, the... Um, so I didn't I didn't I don't know if I parsed correctly this bit where where she at is she asking if he has powers yeah so he's kicking her ass this yeah. guy is kicking her ass and she's like do you have powers and he's like nah <laughs> okay and she's like oh wow you're pretty sharp then uh-huh. and he's like yeah outrage disgust that kind of stuff pushes you so it's basically this idea that like she's getting her ass kicked and it's this idea that amongst that I think are shared by a lot of capes where it's like it's impossible for a non-powered person to take me down. So this person must have powers. And it's like, no, I'm just really, really pissed off. Yeah. And that is fueling me to get the drop on you. So he's, he's verbalizing 
what she's feeling also like yeah i am disgusted with you yeah um, that is true yeah, that is okay. true uh, that's yeah. really good yeah i hadn't i hadn't put that together that he's verbalizing the specific feelings that we just talked about at the beginning of the chapter right disgust surrounded yeah. size by hatred revilement disgust outrage disgust he said so he is confirming her feelings there yeah that's yeah. really great yeah so there's a brief back and forth between the man with the gun and the greater malfunctions team uh, as he kind of tries to explain the tenuous reasoning why it's a good idea to shoot her. Um, and then he shoots her. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so this is this is kind of the critical hinge of, of the whole thing where yeah, yeah. Fume Hood's trying to get the kids to just leave her alone and just abandon her because she knows where this is going. She feels like she deserves this. Basically, she says, you told me your stories, your trigger events. You told me who you are. Let me tell you who I am. I'm Withdrawal's mom, selfish and lazy and dismissive and really fucking bad at taking care of others. I'm the kids who egged Finale on and the asshole who scared her after. I've been such a jackass for so many years. I hurt and scared so many people. I've dealt drugs to people who were like your mom, Carrie added. I've drugged people. I've ruined lives and broken up families just by being there, sometimes on purpose or for fun. And then Carrie added, says, maybe that's who you were, but you're other things too. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. Slow fucking clap. Yeah. I love this. I love everything about this. I love what you said before you started talking about it. Just this idea of um, this is the culmination of these last two chapters. We learned everything about these kids. And now we have Fume Hood saying, I am that. I am all that that did to you. And even that, these kids with this strong bond, with this bond to each other that is self-supporting and almost unbreakable, they have let her into that circle now and they won't leave her. They won't. Um, she is part of that now. And it doesn't matter what you did. It matters what you're doing. Um, and I, like you wouldn't be here if you weren't. And I think being here as we round to the finish line here, I think being here is so important, right? It is what the critical moments have led to all of these, these other critical moments have led to this critical moment and her being here now and what she chooses to do when she's here. And I love it. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as she's, as she's suffering, she accidentally creates this death orb. Um, and she's forced into a situation where she has to choose between letting the kids die or letting the people who are threatening her die. And it's a choice that she doesn't want to have to make because she doesn't want to hurt anyone. This isn't, Mm -hmm. this isn't what she wants to be. And she, you know, the text says doing the unforgivable to avoid the impossible. She couldn't hurt the only decent people she knew, even if it meant betraying everything she wanted out of herself. And it's just, it's just so perfectly tragic, right? It's, she, she, she has to do the thing basically repeating the exact kind of behavior that, is the opposite of what she's been working toward clawing her way out of trying so hard. And and she betrays all of that, or at least she feels like she betrayed it, but it, it's because it's a choice that she, it, it's, it's not a fair choice, right? Like, like no. either, either way it's horrible. Yeah. Um, and it's the kind of choices that these people get thrust into constantly. Right. Yeah. And she, it's not, it's not fair and it's not, it's not right. None of it is right. You shouldn't have to make the, you shouldn't have to sacrifice everything you wanted to be to protect the people that were kind to you. Um, and, and yet she has to do it and it's awful. It's awful and it's not fair and it's tragic and, uh, I hate it. I hate it. And I love it. 
but yeah. I love even more what she does after it, after having to make that terrible choice. Right. And, and I, I mean, I know I'm being a bit meta today, but I just think it's really hitting me how perfect all of those parahumans power mechanisms are like you you get the the, the terrible ironic power like like it uh, we, i mean may, maybe i'm slow in catching things but like it didn't actually land for me to until until today that tinkers tinker triggers arising from um slow burning long-term psychological stress is is perfectly horribly ironic because when you get a tinker power, now your power requires ongoing, slow-burning, low-level psychological stress because you have to upkeep the the tinker stuff. Yeah, it, it's like the nature of the power is is constant, um, constant stress. Yeah, and like that, I'm like, oh, I I don't know how I didn't see that before, but like, the, yeah, that's it, it. It's it's taking. Yeah, it's just the perfect way of, of of making the ironic permanent punishment that makes your life even worse. And um, yeah. and here, so what? So the reason I mention that is to mention the the idea of a second trigger from a dramatic point of view is it's saying like let's it's the most it's the most tragic possible thing mm-hmm. that the second trigger maps perfectly onto what's the most tragic possible thing we can do with this character. Well, we can have them do their best to try to get away from the kind of situation that led to their first fall and then we can have them just be sucked right back into that same situation again in a terrible ironic way i mean it is literally broadly what is happening in the whole story right now right yeah this second apocalypse is coming they survived gold morning they tried to get better and the world is having a second trigger Mm -hmm. right now love it yeah i love that i think that's i think that's great Mm mm-hmm so we briefly, very briefly, jump back to Fume Hood's critical moment, which is really just playing music with finale to pass the time at a stakeout. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, it's perfect, right? There's there, there's no there's no crying, there's no hugging. It's just, oh, she she's able to just kind of connect with these people on a human level, and this is what she needs from them. You know? Yeah. She, I mean, it, it yeah. is it is once again the idea of a critical moment where it's a nothing moment sometimes Mm -hmm. the most critical moments are seemingly the most mundane and insignificant Mm -hmm. and i love that idea yeah yeah returning to what we said earlier she's getting from them what what she doesn't realize she needed and and they're getting from her what they didn't realize they needed yep so then in the present she feels the world cracking apart around her spreading through space tracing along powers and ramifying through the portals she realizes that she needs to guide the event away from the malfunctions and she seizes the well of power, seizes control and begins to transform as she does. We step back um, to another critical moment where Victoria and Tempera work to stabilize her after she was shot the first time. Yeah, I'm just going to let you finish because I have a lot to say at the end of this. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to let you finish. Okay. So the cracks find other branch points, uh, hyper-connected parahumans like Contessa and... Um, I, from the description, I was like, "Is that clairvoyant?" I, I don't, I don't know. So somebody else, probably some of Amy's avatars, probably some other capes we don't even know. Um, and and then in the present, which is also a critical moment, uh, because it's a moment of connection, the Dauntless Titan reaches out to her and requests a response, asking for help. And she communicates back through networks that she sees Contessa is already helping to form a yes, yes, yes. So this is my essay. I okay. ap- apologies apologies um but 
when I originally wrote this, I thought that the arc was done. So I was like, oh, this will be perfect. It'll be like my end of the chapter essay that is also the end of the arc essay. Um, but then the new one came out and it's not um, it's, it's not over yet. But I, th- I don't think that I don't think anything's going to directly change or contradict anything we're talking about here. Um, but this is the book, right? What is what has happened in this moment is the book and it is everything the book has been exploring and pondering and talking about and doing for the past million and a half words. And this is why this is why I love stories, moments like this. The, the reason why I'm here right now talking to you is because every once in a while you experience a moment in a story where everything just comes together. And that's what we've been talking about all arc, right? We've been talking about this feeling of things starting to align and come together. And then here at the end of the arc or at the penultimate end of, <laughs> of the arc is is this moment of all of this idea coming together and it's this beautiful moment where the story just coalesces around this one central idea and it is so powerful that it kind of just knocks your socks off when the story just kind of opens itself up to you and invites you into link everything back together and realize everything it's doing and and you just you just come to terms with it in a way that you hadn't up until this point I love these moments. I live for these moments and I chase them. Like that's why I consume stories because I love these moments. And this is one of those moments for me. It really is. I loved this. I started crying reading this and it's not because it's a really emotional scene. I mean, it is right, but there are more emotional moments in this book, but I cried because I was just blown away with how perfectly and obviously this this moment is like mm-hmm. it started with fumehood. It started with her. The inciting incident of the story was an attack that ended up with fumehood shot. And here at the, not the end, but near the end at one of the final turns of the story, we're back to it. And it's just beautiful. Am, am I being a little hyperbolic? Yeah. Okay. But I fucking loved it. And don't tell me that I can't act too insane about the things that I love. Yeah. So, Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I feel like the, the fume hood thing was was one of those things where it deserves this level of like, oh, my God, this is this is genius. Because, yeah. yeah, she was there. She was there from the beginning. She was in the eclipse arc. She featured prominently in the eclipse arc. That should have that should have drawn our fucking attention. True. Um, I mean, there's the whole Apple thing that I think we're going to talk about later. Mm-hmm. Um, but like she's been she's been throughout this story in ways where she always tied into what was going on. Uh, she, she tied into what was going on with Victoria. She tied into what was going on with the greater thematic movement of the story. And so to have this be the resolution, it's a, it's completely surprising. I don't think anyone would have predicted that it would be fume hood, that that would be this emotional and, and narrative crux, but it, it, it works so well. It's so, yeah. In, in retrospect. Right. Yeah. That, that that's what's great about it to me. Yeah. And, and to me, it serves to answer one of the central questions that this book is posing. Mm-hmm. How how do we get better? How do we recover? How do we live in a world that deals us these shitty hands? How do we live in a world that that, that in which we keep making mistakes, even if even if we're, we're trying to get better? How, how do we, how do we live in a world in which shitty aliens live in our brain and give us a terrible ability to act upon our worst instincts, a world that keeps putting us in situations where we have to choose between the people we care about and the person we want to be a, a world in which this collapse is inevitable how the fuck do we even dare to have hope in that world? What the hell are we supposed to do in the face of that? And the answer here is posed by the text. We try 
and we keep trying. We see those connections to other humans in our lives, the connections that strengthen us, that guide us, that make us the best version of ourselves. We see those connections and we try as hard as we can to hold on to them. And we keep trying no matter what. Because we never know when these moments end up being the critical ones that can influence the very fate of the whole freaking world. And that is what this moment is doing. Victoria never stops trying. Our protagonist never stops trying. And Fume Hood sees this in the very first arc of the book, the inciting incident of the story. And 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 she sees that. And it influences her and she sees the people around her continue to try to help to do good, to do better. And, and because of this moment, Victoria keeps fume hood on her radar and gives her the opportunity to help out a group of kid heroes, a group of kid heroes who are only still together because in their own critical moments, they never stopped trying. They never gave up on the connections between each other. And so they stayed together when other groups would have fallen apart. And because they did so they are here. And because they are here, fume hood is here. And because fume hood is here, Dauntless's network has a necessary connection. As the major malfunctions refuse to leave her behind, refuse to break the connection between them, as the major malfunctions keep trying, so does she. And despite everything bad happening around her, right? Everything bad. There's this moment where she says, this is hell. This is my hell. And it's going to be exhausting. And Dauntless wants months. He wants not, not minutes, not hours, months of focus and work and exhaustion and personal hell to keep this thing standing, to keep this thing up. But she says yes, and she keeps trying. So that, to me, is what this book is about. That, to me, is what this book is saying and what this book is doing and where we're going to go from here is how do you recover from trauma like this? You grab onto the people in your life that you care about and care about you, and you hold on to them, and you never stop trying to hold on to them. That is this book, and I fucking love it. I fucking love it. Yeah. And this this idea of, of connection to me here, we, we, you know, Dauntless remained connected to humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, that is why Dauntless, that is why the Dauntless Titan appears to be the the force that, that is, you know, working on behalf of humanity, despite the fact that it is basically a shard person at this point, maybe more shard than person, but maintained his connection to humanity. And I think that's what we're seeing here is is if Fumehood had not been in this place of, okay, we're trying, we're trying, um, as, as she says to herself, then maybe she she wouldn't be someone who, who this Shard Network could rely on as someone who has a connection to humanity and a connection in the Shard world. Yeah. Uh, kind, of, kind of a bridge, if you will. Yeah, I don't think the Fumehood who sits on the ground bleeding at the end of Arc 1 would make the decision to keep trying would say yes to Dauntless. The the fume hood at the end of arc 17 laying on the ground bleeding from a gunshot wound does. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the most significant thing in the world. Um, I mean, like, look, the apocalypse is here, right? The world is ending, but we have hope. And the hope is in these people or titans, rather, mm-hmm. f- forms of people that are choosing to keep holding things up. We don't know how long they're going to be able to hold it up. We don't know if there's enough of them to hold it up. We don't know if it's going to work. We don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know where the book is going from here, but there is hope because Fumehood, who even in this moment admits, I am not the most powerful one amongst the, the new Titans, right? Like I am not the most powerful one. There are other people standing up in this moment that are more powerful than me, but Dauntless asks for help and she responds. 
and that's what you got to do, man. That's how you get better. That's how you, that's how you move forward in your life. No matter, no matter what, like I, like I love that it came on the back of her having to do the thing that she hated the most again at, at at her lowest moment, you Mm -hmm. could argue. Yeah, sure. I mean, like, like you, this chapter could have ended with her being like, ah, fuck it. It's not even worth trying. Right. Like, like I, I did it again. I did it. I did it again worse than I've ever done it before. And then it led to this happening. Why bother? But, but now she has this attitude of, well, first of all, she has this connection to these kids and she's, she's not going to let the cracks kill the kids. Mm-hmm. And if she's, if she really wants to protect the kids, she kind of has to protect everybody Yeah. and it's going to suck. It's going to be hard, but she's got to do it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the chapter actually ends with, her thinking not enough of the uh, of the new voices that were rising were were, were responding, mm-hmm. um, which is negative, which is which is foreboding. But like for me, I, I just I'm like, yeah, we'll, we'll deal with that. We'll deal with that next chapter probably. I I, I want to focus on on this moment of um, heroism from Fumehood. You yeah, know? well, it yeah. defines it as all the more important, right? Like yeah. it's not like she's rising and standing up and and mm-hmm. accepting the charge and like everyone else is too. It's like they don't have enough. So hers matters even more. The fact that she's doing this matters even more. The the back of the entire universe might rest on this formerly bitchy teenager, like refusing to give up in this moment. Yeah. And I don't know. There's nothing more powerful than that. Like like our characters are going to have to go through a whole lot of shit. It's not done yet. Right. There's still a lot more suffering and and sadness and death that's probably going to happen. But like. Our protagonist is a person that I think fundamentally doesn't give up mm-hmm. as frustrating, as frustrating as she gets. And I think as long as she holds on to that, everything's going to be OK in the end and maybe not even OK. Like, that's the thing is like, it's still not OK. <laughs> like, there's no right. guarantees. There's no guarantees that everything's going to end up OK. But hope exists as long as there are people there willing to, to stay connected. And to try to and to emphasize that connection. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, unfortunately, Fumehood is not okay, right? But yeah, but, yeah. but she's but she's a hero. So yeah, yeah. fucking hero. You did yeah. it, Fumehood. You did it. Yeah, I love this book. Me too. And um, that wraps up our discussion of part six. And I guess next, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure if uh, I'm. I'm betting the next uh, the, uh, the next chapter is, is the last chapter of this arc. So we'll we'll be dealing with that um, next. Yeah, I mean next it's week. Z, yeah. right? So it's unless Z, the, yeah. unless we do some wacky naming so, convention, yeah, some yeah. wacky format stuff, which has just never never happened. Before yeah, I mean, in this story. I, I really thought that this was going to end it, and then we jump into aftermath with Victoria. But my my guess, I guess you could call it. Uh, it's not really a prediction. Is that uh, Z will end with um, or Z will be the direct aftermath of this happening. So we'll kind of get to see it happen. Um, so no comment. I know. All right. Read it already. Jerk. Discussion questions. Okay. From last week was favorite example in fiction of characters who you desperately want to be friends. And as expected, people did not have trouble coming up with examples for this one. Nope. Cal Sublu V2 says Aang and Zuko from Avatar The Last Airbender. Their answer focuses, and I think rightly so, on a particular point in the story where it looks like after seasons of wanting them to be friends, they're finally going to be friends, only for Zuko to make the wrong choice yet again, which 
pisses you off, but only makes you want them to be friends even more ultimately. So, yeah, Zuko. Psh. I know. Just kidding. I love Zuko. You should listen to our episodes on Avatar The Last Airbender because yeah. they were really good the and four, we love that show. The four Doofcast episodes on, on the topic of Avatar. Think? Oh, well, I, I guess if we count The Last Airbender. We do. Okay. Okay. Uh, das Nouveau says Kim Possible and Shigo. I never watched that, so I don't know who those people are. I don't I know. know I mean, is. I know what I knew what Kim Possible is. Call Me Beep Me. My little sister watched that show. I don't even have that connection to it. They also mentioned Scorpia from She-Ra, which is a show we just watched. And did a doofcast on. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> uh, like everybody mentioned Scorpia from She-Ra. A lot of yeah. people talked about She-Ra. Um, Roundest Frog also mentioned Scorpia as being an overwhelmingly kind person who deserves to be friends with everyone. I agree. She's great. I like her little scorpion claws, too. Yeah. I, I mean, she she was already great. We just watched the first season, but she must be even better as we go forward. It sounds like it. Yeah. Kayakin mentions Adora and Katra from She-Ra. <laughs> uh, they're well portrayed as good friends at the start of the series until Adora defects to the good side, leading to, quote, one of the most fascinating character arcs I've seen in any media as Katra begins a constant downward spiral as she doubles down with the Horde despite and indeed in spite of Adora's attempts to bring her to the side of good. Damn, Kayakin, that's throwing the gauntlet. I got to watch me some She-Ra. Yeah, yeah. You got a couple more seasons to catch up with. Yeah. Sarah Penguin writes about their favorite archetype, the character who avoids others because they've been hurt in the past and are afraid to be vulnerable, but they still show that they are good, caring people. This can be the reluctant villain or the aloof hero, and you want them to be able to make them themselves vulnerable. So I like that answer. It's like a, I want this character archetype to make friends because they mm -hmm. struggle with that. They have such a hard time trusting people. It's a good answer, Sarah Penguin. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that too. It kind of it kind of points out that we kind of are asking about an archetype in the first place, like a, an archetypal kind of relationship. Zach Defense's answer must be read in full. <laughs> Quote, I've seen a couple posts about a certain Netflix cartoon already, so let me add this pairing to the ring. The girl who left behind the evil organization that raised her and the girl who was tasked with bringing her in, the two women who, despite being on op opposing sides of this conflict, have a mutual respect for each other's abilities. What, did you think I meant She-Ra? I'm, of course, talking about Carmen and Argent from Netflix's new and surprisingly good Carmen San Diego, San Diego cartoon. Well played, Zach Defense. Well played. I forgot that Netflix had a Carmen San Diego cartoon. Yeah, me too. Salt talks about a game called Fire Emblem Three Houses. Yet again, this seems to be the story of people who were friends as children but grew to embody opposing philosophies. That is a, a, a very well-trod... Uh, story element but i think it really works i think it does yeah yeah i mean i was i was surprised that nobody brought up naruto and sasuke because that's sort of a big popular one but the problem is i never really cared about sasuke anyway uh so yeah. you know what i heard I, wah, wah, yeah. Wah, wah, wah. I, yeah i i like how i said that almost as if i was expecting some kind of response from you <laughs> yeah um hero of old iron says shinji ikara and Karo Kagisi from Neon Genesis Evangelion. This seems to be an instance of a character who is able to get through to another and get that character to see their own inherent value. Um, kind of seems from the context of this answer that this was then used to just hurt the viewer even worse. Oh. I haven't seen this, so I don't really understand. Me the, neither. The All right, next up we have Fluid Horror, who talks about two characters, Kaladin and 
Adeline from Sanderson's Stormlight Archive. Uh, we skimmed this one because we want to read these books, but I, I believe you, Fluid Horror. I bet they're really good. Yeah, Kaladin um, and, and, and Andalin. That sounds, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you've read those, Stormlight, go read that answer. It's on my shelf right over there, by, yeah. right behind my computer, and I'm going to read it one day. Yeah. Uh, Death of the Artist talks about Bob and Charlotte from Lost in Translation. The film starkly depicts the abject loneliness of these two characters and then, quote, after dragging you through the briar patch of raw loneliness, the budding friendship unfolding on screen feels like just as much of a lifeline for us in the audience as it does for the characters in the film. Their relationship feels so organic and raw that it carries you through the rest of the runtime. It is gorgeous. Watch the movie. I agree. That that is a very very special movie. God, I love that movie. I love that movie so much. I need to rewatch it. God, it's so special. It's very unique. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Senior examiner says skitter and clock blocker. Why did I say that? Right? <laughs> clock blocker. <laughs> they point out that Cloxy is the kind of friend Taylor needs. Someone who will push her and call her out on her bullshit. And the two of them have a mutual respect. I agree. I wish those two kids could have been friends forever. But then they both died. <laughs> uh, but they both died. But now they're both alive. The end. Wait, no, I don't know how to follow that properly. Uh, Sandwich <laughs> says they really wanted Faramir and Pippin to become friends because they have very different perspectives on the world they live in, and they would have had interesting conversations. Oh man, that's a good answer. I never yeah. thought about that, but the second Sandwich said it, I was like, heck yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure why exactly Pippin in particular, but but it, it is interesting to think about. I think they do they do have very interesting perspectives on the world that would play off very interestingly. Yeah, sure, um, definitely. I mean, they, I, wonder, I agree with them. I, I wonder if Frodo and Sam ever talked to Pippin about Faramir, and he's like, "I'd like to have a talk with that chap. He seems I, to have the highest quality." I mean, Pippin is the one who hung out with Denethor, so I guess that's the connection. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, Hobo Demon. Last says Caesar and Joseph from Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. Um, I'm sure it was a great answer, Hobo Demon. I don't think either of us could understand a single word. <laughs> in any of this. Yeah, I mean, basically, it, it, it was so full. It was so spoiler ish that I was like, I don't know what any of these things are, so I don't know how to convey it. But yeah, Caesar and Joseph from Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. I just wish those two could just be the bestest of friends. Yeah. They, they sound delightful. Um, so we kind of obliquely referenced this. This was a, a different thread in the subreddit, which I wanted to call out. Um, someone noticed that. We should, back, have, uh, we should have got the name. Let me you talk. I'll search yeah, for the name. I'll do that. So uh, some, someone noticed that uh, back in the chapter where the Dauntless Titan formed, um, the Harbinger clones are talking about the the shard network in the abstract and they're talking about the letters they start saying letters at the time we thought we were clever we thought we were so fucking clever because we noticed that one of the sequences of letters they say corresponds to the the out of order uh interlude names in that in that arc which is like z e and then all and then f and then none Mm -hmm. um which is kind of parallels to what the what the harbinger says but they point out that the Harbingers spell a couple other things in there. Um, one of the things they spell is apple. <laughs> it's right. It's it's right there. It's like it's not out of order. Fuck. It's not weird in any way. It's just apple. Now the now the clever thing Wildbo has done is it's very easy to forget the apple association because she's fume hood now. Yeah. 
but it and it took us a while to like it's it's a background element that she was poison apple and rotten apple and all that stuff. Um, but it's right there, connected to the apocalypse, the source of the apocalypse. It's fucking right there. It's right. It's right there. It's right there. Um, and the the Reddit user who posted this is an actual owl. Uh, so so literally. An owl was wise enough to figure this out. An actual owl. Yeah. There yeah. we go. That's that's amazing so, that really an owl great was pull. able to post. Um, but yeah, gr- great thread. Uh, good, 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 good find. Um, yeah, loved it. Loved it. That's one of those really. That's one of those really fun things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, it's one of those things that's just fun because it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't. <laughs> like, it, missing that does not change your enjoyment of the story, right? Like, it's just this little fun. It's not really an Easter egg, but kind of, I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, some somebody in the thread basically said, I think they were being lighthearted about it, but like this kind of thing is just Wildlow flexing on <laughs> how far ahead he's planned everything. Right. Well, and um, I mean, I, I think to me, and I, again, I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating. But to me, this idea, the moment we got at the end of this chapter was part of the long-term plan now like i think wild bow's a pantser like he does not outline everything out clearly but this seems to have been part of the idea from the beginning yeah i, th- I think so i think so um i i mean there's just the fact that it was in chapter that, that she's an important character in chapter one i'm like yeah that yeah. seems yeah, yeah. planted the, the apple seed if you will <laughs> okay next week's discussion question have you ever changed the way you live your life because of a story? Why, yes, Matt. Now I have a podcast that I do. <laughs> <laughs> in, 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 in a big way, yes. Yeah. Uh, but we're asking about you folks out there. Yeah. Uh, I think this is an interesting question and get as personal or uh, not personal as you want, obviously. But uh, just talk to us about a story and how it maybe changed you uh, it made you act differently become a different person affected you in in a way it can be these stories uh i wouldn't blame you but yeah Yeah. let you see people or things in a different way all right uh that's all we got for you this week on we've got ward you are all part of this show so feel free to provide us with advice questions or thoughts on this week's reading you can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com but i know you guys already know that because you sent me all these emails about aliens <laughs> or on our twitter account at gotwormpod my pod pad pod pad pod my personal twitter is at scottdaily85 and matt's is at rotten apple more than mail asshole tattoo um it, i wasn't gonna go there but if you want <laughs> Uh, ladies and gentlemen, important announcement. Matt does indeed have an asshole tattoo. <laughs> I only wish. I only wish. Um, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an ap- episode. Episode. Wow. We're just it's, all over the place today. It's happening, yes. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else podcasts can be found. Uh, and as always, you can find all of our shows over at our website, doofmedia.com. That's where you can find which show are we talking about today? Um, what to say? You guys are on the 13th episode of that. Lucky number 13. It's the Christmaka episode. That's that's convenient because it's almost December in a, in a few weeks. True. Um, the the do the right thing words this this week. Is that true? No. 
That was last week. The do the right thing <laughs> words this week are soggy, teeny, lethal, prickly. I've already written my story this week. Have wow. you? Probably not. Get on that, everyone. Look at that Jesus. mad guilt. I love it. I love it. Get on it. Yeah. Um, uh, Elliot was on. Was it Elliot that was on Do the Right Elliot Thing? Elliot was on week? Do the yeah. Right Thing this past week. Yes, that, that, that was a great episode. That is always cool when they have a guest. Those are always my favorites. Yeah. Um, Deep Impact continues to be uh, just delightful. Such fucking delightful. We talked about <laughs> She Ra on the Doofcast. That yeah, happened. We, we talked about like five episodes of the Doofcast. We, we did. Yeah, we don't need to talk about that anymore. Uh, Hero of Ages Book Club is happening next this week. Month. Next, next week, yes. Next Friday, yeah. That's. Um, and, um, I gotta read that book. Jesus. All right, let's wrap this up so I can go read good stuff. All right. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Uh, if you like these shows or want to support them, consider donating at patreon.com slash doof media. You can donate, uh, a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you cool bonuses, like the ability to vote in the fan art and costume contests, um, hangout sessions with us, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and, of course, our excellent Discord chat. Uh, and as always, if you're on Patreon.com, go to Patreon.com slash and donate to Wildbo because this is his world. He's the one who makes all this possible. We are just frolicking in this apocalyptic wasteland. It's beautiful. Well Special done, thanks. Thank you. Special thanks this week to new patrons, Bidoofs, David S., Elson T., and Jake D., Doof Dancer, Ifran, Doof Trooper, Nick H., and Supreme Leader Doof Reisman. Wow. wow. Thanks, everyone. Y'all, thank you so much. It's also awesome. I'm yeah, we so really ba- appreciate I'm each so, of you. I'm so bad at, like, like, feel, like, I just, I don't know what to do. I'm just like, so, <laughs> thank you, thank I'm, you. Yeah, it's, it's kind of overwhelming, to be honest. We yeah, don't know how to respond other than to say we really appreciate you, and, and, and it's, it's hugely encouraging. Um, yeah, we're we're got a lot of things planned behind the scenes. Oh yeah. Um co- I mean we constantly do. Like we right. had a, our big all hands meeting last Friday and that is basically all uh six of us and sometimes some more getting together and talking about all the projects we want to do uh, and really just setting up way too much. But it's all exciting. Uh we think you're going to enjoy it all. So thank you for all of you that make that stuff possible. Yeah. And of course, if you cannot afford to donate right now, that's okay. You're just you're a member of this community. If you download our podcast and listen to it, uh, that helps us on its own. You can also share it with people you know. Uh, do you have friends that like Shira? We talked about that season. Share that with them. That would really help us. Uh, you can always also leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher uh, or any of those other apps that do rating and reviews. Uh, that really helps new people find our podcast and we really appreciate it when you do that yeah that's all we have for you this week next week it's the end of the world as we know it and scott feels fine i do i do feel fine i have hope i have hope because we try i don't know